السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له ونشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا أما بعد فأعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد Respects and listeners As was announced We've gathered here today for the study and commentary of a very famous hadith related by Abu Dhar al-Ghifari radiyallahu an. A few weeks, well a few months ago, I spoke on the famous companion Abu Dhar al-Ghifari radiyallahu an in some detail. And we learnt that he was a great scholar in his own right. In fact, he was considered to be an equal to Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Mas'ud in his scholarship. But he is not so well known as a scholar because another characteristic of his personality was more dominant. And that was his unworldliness and his asceticism and his fearless proclamation of the truth. He was very unworldly and he, being a very close and beloved companion of Rasulullah narrated a number of hadith and one of his more famous narrations is one which is recorded by a number of authors in their books Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal records his hadith in his, this hadith in his Musnad. Imam Bukhari, not in his Sahih, but in his Aladab al-Mufrad. Imam Tirmidhi, Imam ibn Majah in their Sunan. And many other authors. This, this isn't an exhaustive list, just an exemplary list. But the most famous scholar of hadith who collected the most complete version of this Hadith of Abu Dhar is Imam Muslim in his Sahih. This hadith is one of the greatest hadith of Rasulullah that has come down to us. And many of the scholars throughout the centuries took great delight in relating this hadith and in recording this hadith in their books, even just for the purpose of barakah. Because there are a number of hadith, not that many, some ulama say approximately a hundred hadith, which are regarded as qudusi hadith, in that the Prophet 
doesn't just relate the words of the hadith and explain himself. Rather, he attributes these words to, to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself. So we have the Qur'an, which is the primary source of revelation. And these are the words of Allah. This is the kalam and the speech of Allah. And the Prophet sallallahu was a carrier. He conveyed the very words of Allah in the Qur'an. And that's why the Qur'an holds a unique position. We are rewarded for its recitation. It's to be recited in salah. In fact, we are rewarded for even reciting letters of the Qur'an, though we may not understand them. The other form of revelation, equally from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, is not the Qur'an, but what the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam relates himself. The meaning is from Allah, undoubtedly, since the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam never spoke of his own desire. As Allah says in the Qur'an in Surah Al-Najm, وَمَا يَنْتِقُ عَنِ الْهَوَىٰ إِنْ هُوَ إِلَّا وَحْنِ يُوحَىٰ عَلَّمَهُ شَدِيدُ الْقُوَىٰ That he, the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, does not speak of desire. Nay, it is naught but a revelation which is revealed unto him. The one of great might and power, meaning Jibreel alayhi salam, taught him. So nothing that the Prophet spoke of when he taught and preached to his followers was of his own desire or they weren't merely his own thoughts. Rather, this was a reflection of the revelation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But the wording would be from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. In between the hadith of Rasulullah alayhi salatu wa sallam and the Holy Qur'an, both are, which are forms of revelation, we have a set of hadith, some ulama say, as I said earlier, that number approximately 100. Not all of them are uh, as authentic as one another, they are in various grades of reliability. But these hundreds of hadith, they are known as Qudusi hadith. And the meaning is that in these hadith, although they are not like the Qur'an, but in them, the Prophet ﷺ actually ascribes the words directly to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So rather than just speak, he says, Allah said, or Allah says, so there are a number of Qudusi hadith, and out of these Qudusi hadith, this is probably one of the most famous ones. And not just one of the most famous, but also one of the most prestigious. And this is why the ulama would delight in relating this hadith. So let me relate the hadith, and then inshallah we'll begin the commentary of each of the individual sentences. وبالإسناد المتصل مني إلى الإمام مسلم رحمه الله قال حدثنا عبد الله بن عبد الرحمن بن بهرام الدارمي قال حدثنا مروان يعني بن محمد الدمشقي قال حدثنا سعيد بن عبد العزيز عن ربيعة بن يزيد عن أبي إدريس الخولاني عن أبي ذر رضي الله عنه عن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم فيما روى عن الله تبارك وتعالى أنه قال يا عبادي إني حرمت الظلم على نفسي وجعلته بينكم محرما فلا تظالم يا عبادي كلكم ضال إلا من هديته فاستهدوني أهدكم يا عبادي كلكم جائع إلا من أطعمته فاستطعموني أطعمكم يا عبادي 
كلكم عار إلا من كسوته فاستكسوني أكسكم يا عبادي إنكم تخطئون بالليل والنهار وأنا أغفر الذنوب جميعا فاستغفروني أغفر لكم يا عبادي إنكم لن تبلغوا ضري فتضروني ولن تبلغوا نفعي فتنفعوني يا عبادي لو أن أولكم وآخركم وإنسكم وجنكم كانوا على أتقى قلب رجل واحد منكم ما زاد ذلك في ملكي شيئا يا عبادي لو أن أولكم وآخركم وإنسكم وجنكم كانوا على أفجر قلب رجل واحد ما نقص ذلك من ملكي شيئا يا عبادي لو أن أولكم وآخركم وإنسكم وجنكم قاموا في سعيد واحد فسألوني فأعطيت كل إنسان مسألته ما نقص ذلك مما عندي إلا كما ينقص المخيط إذا أدخل البحر يا عبادي إنما هي أعمالكم أحصيها لكم ثم أوفيكم إياها فمن وجد خيرا فليحمد الله ومن وجد غير ذلك فلا يلومن إلا نفسه أو كما قال صلى الله عليه وسلم فيما روى عن الله تبارك وتعالى That's the Arabic text of the hadith and I actually narrated it as I said with, a chain of, with an uninterrupted chain of narration from me all the way to Imam Muslim, rahimahullah, who says that Abdullah ibn Abdul Rahman ibn Bahram al-Darimi related to us that Marwan, meaning ibn Muhammad al-Dimashqi, narrated to us that Sa'id ibn Abdul Aziz narrated to us from Rabi'at ibn Yazid, from Abu Idris al-Khawlani, from Abu Dhar radiyallahu an, from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, in that as part of that which he related from Allah, blessed and exalted is he, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, O my servants, I have forbidden injustice upon myself. And I have made it prohibited amongst you. Therefore do not be unjust to one another. O my servants, every one of you, is misguided, except one whom I guide. Therefore seek guidance of me, and I shall guide you. O my servants, every one of you is hungry, except one whom I feed. Therefore seek sustenance of me, and I shall feed you. O my servants, every one of you is naked and unclothed, except one whom I clothe and shelter, Therefore seek protection from me, or covering from me, and I shall cover you. O my servants, indeed you sin day and night, and I forgive all sins. Therefore seek my forgiveness, and I shall forgive you. O my servants, you will never reach the stage of harming me so that you can harm me. And you will never be able to reach the stage of benefiting me so that you can benefit me. O my servants, if the first and the last and the men and the jinn amongst you were all as pious as the most pious-hearted man amongst you, this would not increase anything in my kingdom. O my servants, if the first and the last, the men and the jinn amongst you, were all as sinful 
as the most sinful hearted one amongst you, this would not reduce anything from my kingdom. O my servants, if the first and the last, the men and the jinn amongst you, were all to stand in one plane, and then each was to ask me, and then I was to give each their wish, this would not reduce from what I have, except to the degree of what a pin or a needle reduces when it's dipped into the ocean and extracted again. O oh, my servants, these are but your deeds. I enumerate them and collect them for you. Then I shall give you them, I shall give you their full recompense. So whoever finds good, then let him praise Allah. And whoever finds other than this, then let him blame no one but himself. This is the full hadith. And as I said, the ulama would delight in relating this hadith for a number of reasons. It contains many of the basic teachings and truths of Islam. And Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, rahmatullahi alayhi, who related this hadith and recorded it in his musnad, he would say, ليس لأهل الشام حديث أشرف من هذا الحديث that for the people of Sham there is no more prestigious and noble hadith than this hadith and the reason is that all of the narrators at least during the time of Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal till then all of the narrators are from Sham. They're all from Damascus. They're all Damascene narrators. Abu Dhar al-Ghifari radiyallahu an, as I mentioned, when discussing his life, he lived in Damascus for a time. And that's where he related this hadith. The one who relates from him, in the Senate of Imam Muslim, rahmatullahi alayhi, the one who relates from him is Imam Abu Idris al-Khawlani. And he's from Damascus. And he wasn't just a ran... We have to understand about the narrators of hadith that they weren't just laymen who happened to relate hadith from one another. So we may just say casually the narrators of hadith. But that was never the case. Each of the narrators of hadith, even those who were actually declared to be weak and unreliable, they were great scholars and judges and authors in their own right. Almost in every stage. Now here we have Abu Dhar al-Ghifari radiyallahu an relating from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The one who relates from him is Abu Idris al-Khawlani. Abu Idris al-Khawlani was the judge and the great scholar of Damascus. In fact, he used to teach and preach in the presence of the companions. And I'll tell you a bit more about him in a moment. So Abu Idris al-Khawlani is from Damascus. The student who narrates from Abu Idris al-Khawlani, Rabi'at ibn Yazid, he's from Damascus. And again, he was a great scholar in his own right. The one who relates from Rabi'at ibn Yazid is Sa'id ibn Abdul Aziz, a name which we may never have heard of. But the ulama used to say that the position of Imam Sa'id ibn Abdul Aziz in Sham was the equivalent of the position of Imam Malik in Medina. And the one who relates from Sa'id ibn Abdul Aziz, 
Marwan. Again, he was a scholar. And the one who relates from Marwan, he, he was from Dimashq as well. So Marwan was from Dimashq. Saeed ibn Abdul Aziz was from Dimashq. Rabi'at ibn Yazid was from Dimashq. In this chain of Imam Muslim which I related, all of the narrators were scholars in their own right, and they were all from Damascus, except for Imam Muslim's teacher. Imam Muslim's teacher in this narration was Imam Abdullah ibn Abdul Rahman al-Darimi, who's a famous author of Sunan al-Darimi. He's actually the teacher of Imam Muslim. But that doesn't negate the fact that this is a hadith which belongs to the people of Sham, because as I said earlier, up till the fourth or fifth generation of narrators, after which the hadith spread far and wide. And Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal said there is no hadith which is more noble and prestigious for the people of Sham than this hadith of Abu Dhar radiallahu And in fact, it was so prestigious. We may not be able to recognize that. But let's take the example of Imam Abu, Muslim, Imam Abu Idris al-Khawlani, the one who narrates his hadith from Abu Dhar al-Ghifari radiallahu Who was he in terms of his learning and scholarship? He was born in the eighth year of Hijrah. But he never got to see the Prophet ﷺ. He was a child. So he's one of the leading tabi'een, one of the leading students of the Sahaba. He was actually born in the eighth year of Hijrah. Now, he grew up amongst the Sahaba, learning from them. And during his own lifetime, he was so highly regarded in terms of his scholarship and piety, that as far as scholarship was concerned, he once was teaching... And he was speaking about the expeditions of Rasulullah and his journeys and travels. So once he had completed his discourse on that particular occasion, a man from the end of the gathering, he spoke up and he said, were you present on any of these occasions with the messenger So Abu Idris al-Khawlani said, no. So that man said, well, let me tell you, I was present with the Prophet ﷺ, and yet you are able to preserve the details of these expeditions than even I can, even though you weren't present. And the ulama would say that after Abu Darda, the famous companion and sahabi of Damascus, the greatest scholar, even, amongst the, even in the presence of the companions, was Imam Abu Idris al-Khawlani. And in terms of piety, in the masjid of Damascus, it's related that he would be seated. There would be groups of people, including groups of sahaba, عنهم, who would be reciting the Qur'an in groups. When they would come to a verse of sajda, they would all pause, including the sahaba, and they would summon Abu Idris al-Khawlani. Then they would request him to recite the verse of prostration and sajda, and then they would all prostrate. So that's in terms of piety, the Sahaba عنهم, would call upon him to recite the verse of sujood, and then they would prostrate. So he was highly regarded, and yet this same Abu Idris al-Khawlani, rahmatullahi alayhi, he regarded this hadith with such awe and reverence that whenever he would relate this hadith, he would do so kneeling forward, always out of total respect, and in total submission and humility, he would relate this entire hadith kneeling. So, 
This is why I said this hadith, uh, the ulama would delight in relating it. And I mentioned about the Damascene narrators, meaning the narrators from Damascus. Imam Nawawi, rahmatullahi alayhi, was a famous scholar of the, sixth, of the 7th century. He died in 676 Hijri. So he's a scholar of the 7th century. One can imagine the number of narrators that would be found between him and the Prophet And yet in his Kitab al-Adhkar, Imam Nawawi relates the same hadith from his teachers, and he himself was a resident of Damascus. So Imam Nawawi relates this hadith in his Kitab al-Adhkar from himself all the way to Rasulullah and then he mentions that the unique thing about this narration which I have related, of Abu Dhar radiallahu anhu, is that every single narrator, all the way from my teachers to Abu Dhar radiallahu anhu, is a scholar of Damascus. So this is why they would delight in relating this hadith, and they would consider this hadith to be the hadith of the people of Sham. In any case, I've related the main hadith. Now let's look at the individual wording. Allah, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ya ibadi, O my servants, Inni harramtu dhulma ala nafsi wajaltuhu baynakum muharraman fala tadhalam. O my servants, I have forbidden dhulm upon myself. And I have forbidden it amongst you. Therefore do not be unjust to one another. One of the Phrases that occurs throughout this hadith is Ya Ibadi, O my servants. And this one phrase in itself speaks volumes. It tells us of a number of things all at once that we belong to Allah. He owns us, we are His creation, we belong to Him. He is our Lord, our Master. He can do with us as he wishes. For he possesses us. And we are his servants, his slaves. We serve him. Worship in Arabic is known as ibadah. And ibadah means service. Originally it doesn't mean worship. So we don't just serve Allah when standing before him in ritual prayer. We serve him for every moment of our existence. Our whole being is one of servitude. We belong to him. He possesses us. We are his servants. We are his slaves. We are his bondsmen. Allah owns us. He has total power over us. And we are helpless before him. We are dependent on him, reliant on him. We are in need of him for everything. And that's what the hadith speaks of. For sustenance, for shelter, for protection, for concealment of our faults and of our reality, for life, for guidance, for the forgiveness of our sins. But the word servant and slave and bondsman in relation to the creation and Allah is not just one of ownership and possession and control. It's also one of belonging. It's one of a connection, of a relationship. And more than that, it's one of compassion, love, 
affection. For Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses this phrase in the Qur'an as well to encompass all of these meanings. At one and the same time we are reminded of our duty to Allah, our belonging to Allah, of our need of Allah, our own helplessness. And at the same time we are reminded of our connection to Allah, that we belong to Him. And we have a relationship with Allah. And he also reminds us at one and the same time of Allah's love and compassion. And when he uses this phrase in the Qur'an, it's used in a very balanced way. At times, it's used to remind us of Allah's forgiveness as well as his power of punishment. So in Surah Al-Hijr, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, That inform my servants that I am the most forgiving, the most merciful. And inform them that my punishment is a painful punishment. And the reason for this is that we have to maintain a balanced relationship with Allah. One of trust and reliance, as well as fear and awe, respect and reverence. We hope for Allah's mercy and forgiveness, but at the same time we must fear his punishment. If there is any imbalance in this, and normally there is, we become complacent. Islam forbids both. One can, Islam forbids despair. One cannot fear Allah so much that one loses despair of Allah's mercy and forgiveness. Despair is haram. And at the same time, complacency is haram. When we become complacent, we feel that Allah, we tend to focus just on maghfirah and rahmah and compassion, forgiveness and mercy. Rather, we have to adopt a balanced approach in re- about our relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that verse explains it all. Inform my servants that I am the most forgiving, the most merciful, and inform them that my punishment is the most painful punishment. However, in other verses, all we can feel and sense in the words, Ya ibadi, O my servants, is love and compassion. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, قُلْ يَا عِبَادِيَ الَّذِينَ أَسْرَفُوا عَلَىٰ أَنفُسِهِمْ لَا تَقْنَطُوا مِنْ رَحْمَةِ اللَّهِ إِنَّ اللَّهِ يَغْفِرُ الذُّنُوبِ جَمِيعًا إِنَّهُ هُوَ الْغَفُورُ الرَّحِيمُ In Surah Al-Zumar he says, Say, O my servants, meaning he tells the Prophet وسلم, inform my servants. So say, my servants, those who have transgressed against themselves. Do not despair of the mercy of Allah. Verily, Allah forgives all sins. Verily, he is most forgiving, most merciful. In another verse of Surah Al-Baqarah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَإِذَا سَأَلَكَ عِبَادِي عَنِّي And when my, when my servants ask you about me, فَإِنِّي قَرِيبٌ Then they should know that I am close at hand. When my servants ask you about me, فَإِنِّي قَرِيبٌ أُجِيبُ دَعْوَةَ الدَّاعِ إِذَا دَعَانَ فَلْيَسْتَجِيبُوا لِي وَلْيُؤْمِنُوا بِي لَعَلَّهُمْ يَرْشُدُونَ When my servants ask you about me, then verily I am close. I answer the prayer and the call of one who calls out to me. When he calls out to me. Therefore, let them respond to my call and let them believe in me in the hope that they may find righteousness and guidance. And in Surah Al-Fajr, at the time of death and in the hereafter, we will be told those who are 
pious, those who will be forgiven by Allah, those who deserve it, they will be told, Ya ayyatuhan nafsul mutma'inna, irji'i ila rabbiki radiyatan mardiyya, fadkhuli fi ibadi wadkhuli jannati. O soul that is content, O content soul, O tranquil soul, return to your Lord, pleased with Allah, and pleased with, meaning Allah is pleased with and content with you. Enter into my gardens. Enter amongst my servants and enter among, into my gardens. So again, Allah says, enter amongst my servants. So these phrases of my servants, especially in these verses which I've related, speak of a very close and special relationship between the creation and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And though it may sound strange to us, the title of abd, of servant, is one of the greatest titles of honor and dignity that Allah confers upon anyone in his creation. It really is. That's a relationship between Allah and his creation. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he is mighty and majestic. And he wants the creation to be dependent on him. And he wants them to know that they are dependent on him. And this is why Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa has taught us that when we pray to Allah and supplicate to him, we should praise Allah before we pray to him. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgives much. But one, one thing which leads to destruction is pride and arrogance. Because in pride and arrogance, one challenges Allah in his pride and majesty. In fact, one of the names of Allah is Al-Mutakabbir, the proud one. Allah forbids anyone to be proud and arrogant or boastful. But Allah is boastful of his favors. And Allah is proud, for he deserves to be such. That's his majesty. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's relationship with his creation is such that the more they humble themselves before him, the more they express their dependency on him, the more Allah loves them, the more Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala elevates them. It may be counterintuitive, but the more we lower ourselves before Allah, the more Allah elevates us in his own sight. So this is why amongst the prophets, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refers to many of the prophets as servants. In fact, all of them. And even at the best of times, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, as Muslims believe, he was the most beloved of all the prophets to Allah, the greatest of creation. Yet Allah only mentions him by name a few times, only when the context demands it. Otherwise, he's normally addressed as prophet and messenger. But on many occasions, Allah refers to him simply as servant. And even in the best of times, when Allah speaks of him receiving the revelation, Blessed is he who revealed the criterion, the distinction, i.e. the Qur'an, upon his servants. In Surah Al-Kahf, All praise be to that Allah who revealed the book to his servant. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala invited the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa in Mi'raj, and that was one of his greatest miracles that Allah bestowed upon him. On that occasion, when he went to the heavens and beyond, where no one, not even the angels, could go, 
of that journey, of that miraculous journey, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, on so many favors were conferred upon him, so many titles were given to him, so many secrets were revealed to him. Even on that occasion, Allah chooses not to describe him as prophet or messenger or even by his name. Allah says, Subhanallah asra bi abdihi laylam min al-masjid al-haram il al-masjid al-aqsa alladhi barakna hawla. That glorified be Allah who carried his servant by night from Masjid al-Aqsa to, from al-Masjid al-Haram to al-Masjid al-Aqsa. The point I wish to make is, Allah even refers to his prophets, salam as ibad and as abd, as servants and as his slaves. And for them, that was a title of great honor. So if ubudiyah, in fact, what better example could there be than Isa ibn Maryam, salam, Isa, the son of Maryam, Billions across the globe, now and throughout history, have hailed the Prophet Isa, the son of Maryam, السلام, not just as a pious man, not just as a prophet, not just as God's servant, not just as a holy man, but even beyond, they've elevated him to God himself, to one of the Holy Trinity, to the, being the son of God. And they worshipped him. And they continued to worship him. Allah will even ask him on the day of reckoning. As Allah mentions towards the end of Surah Al-Ma'idah. وَإِذْ قَالَ اللَّهُ يَا عِيسَى بْنَ مَرْيَمَ أَأَنْتَ قُلْتَ لِلنَّاسِ اتَّخِذُونِي وَأُمِّيَ إِلَهَيْنِ مِن دُونِ اللَّهِ And remember when Allah will say, O Isa, son of Maryam, did you tell the people to take you and your mother as God, that take me and my mother as gods besides Allah. And undoubtedly, the Prophet Isa's protest is innocence. So even the Prophet Isa, the son of Maryam, والسلام, he was given a rank that even the Prophet والسلام, has never been given, which is of being worshipped, of being considered one of the Trinity, of being God incarnate, of being God himself. Even someone who is regarded as God himself, what does Allah say of him in the Qur'an? لَنْ يَسْتَنْكِفَ الْمَسِيحُ أَنْ يَكُونَ عَبْدًا لِلَّهِ وَلَا الْمَلَائِكَةُ الْمُقَرَّبُونَ That Masih, the Messiah, even the Messiah will not disdain and turn up his nose from being the abd and servant of Allah, and nor will the closest angels. And there's a very beautiful story about this. Someone who was a Christian and was looking into Islam, he accepted everything. But the one thing holding him back from actually embracing was the following thought, which he expressed, that, I accept and believe everything that I have read so far about Islam and I'm, I wish to embrace. But he was a practicing Christian. He said, the one thing which prevents me from doing so is that all my life I have hailed Jesus as the Son of God, as God and as one of the Holy Trinity. And now my heart and my mind and my very being just cannot accept the thought 
of drastically and suddenly and dramatically reducing him from God to a simple servant, one of God's creation. I just cannot do it. This is what's holding me back. And then he said, he continued to read the Qur'an, and he came across this verse. That the Messiah himself will not disdain and turn up his nose in being a servant to Allah. He said, when I read that verse, all my doubts just dissipated immediately. And I felt that if Jesus himself will not disdain being a servant of Allah, then who am I to hold back? And in fact, that was the only block which he overcame by reading this simple verse. So, the greatest, one of the greatest titles that Allah bestows upon his messengers and chosen prophets is one of being an abd, a servant. He bestowed that title on the Prophet ﷺ in Mi'raj and on many other occasions. So, who are we then not to consider ourselves as servants of Allah, as ibad? And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala begins this hadith with that one phrase which encompasses so much. Allah says, Ya ibadi, O my servants. Inni harramtu dhulma ala nafsi, wajaltuhu baynakum harraman fala tadhalamu. I have made dhulm, injust, I have made dhulm, haram, forbidden upon myself. What's dhulm? It's a common word which we are familiar with, but in common parlance, dhulm is normally referred to as being tyranny, oppression, repression, injustice, massacre, genocide. The word dhulm conjures up very strong images of oppression and tyranny, which are all true. But these are at the extreme end of dhulm, and unfortunately, in non in common language, the word dhulm has become restricted to these extreme meanings, which is an error on our part. Because that leads us again to complacency, thinking that dhulm is always practiced by others, not us. So it's only tyrannical rulers, or madmen, or malicious individuals who are guilty of dhulm on a mass scale. However, since we are not in a position of power or, or immense or extreme influence, we are incapable of tyranny. We are incapable of oppression. We are incapable of dhulm. But the truth is, dhulm is not restricted to these meanings. These are the extreme manifestations of dhulm. In Arabic, dhulm simply means placing something in an undeserved place. Dhulm in Arabic originally simply means transgressing the bounds, going beyond the limit, no matter how minor it may be. Dhulm in Arabic simply means wrongdoing. So we don't have to be tyrannical rulers. We don't have to be in positions of great power and influence to be capable of dhulm. Rather, every one of us, in our lowly selves, is not just capable, is actually guilty of dhulm. And that's exactly what the Sahaba radiallahu anhum recognized. Imam Bukhari and Imam Muslim rahmatullahi alayhima both relate hadith 
from Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu anhu says that when the verse of Surah Al-An'am was revealed in which Allah says الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَلَمْ يَلْبِسُوا إِيمَانَهُمْ بِظُلْمٍ that those who have believed and who have not polluted their faith with dhulm these are the ones for whom there is security and these are the ones who are rightly guided so Abdullah ibn Mas'ud says when this verse was revealed this bore down heavily on the believers because their understanding of dhulm was a correct one which is any wrongdoing and they said to themselves who amongst us does not wrong himself and the, the companions collectively were concerned that this means that one has to be only of the purest of faith in order to be secure, safe and guided and that they cannot pollute their faith with any wrongdoing. Allah says those who have believed and who have not contaminated their faith with any wrongdoing, they are the ones for whom there is security and who are rightly guided. So the companions said, we, this bore down heavily on us and this was difficult for us for who amongst us does not wrong himself so we went to the Prophet and we spoke to him of this the Prophet reassured them by saying it's not what you think the dhulm being referred to here is the dhulm have you not read the verse where the pious servant Abdul Salih Luqman was advising his son and he said is from the Quran and remember when Luqman was advising and counseling his son and he said to him oh my son oh my child do not ascribe partners unto Allah verily shirk polytheism ascribing partners to Allah is a great wrongdoing, a great injustice. So the Sahaba radiallahu anhum understood dhulm as it should be understood in its original meaning, although the Prophet reassured them by correcting them and saying, in this particular context, it doesn't refer to any wrongdoing, it refers to a great wrongdoing of shirk. So the truth is, dhulm is like a spectrum. At the extreme end, you have tyranny and oppression, murder and genocide. And in that spectrum is also shirk, where a person ascribes partners unto Allah. That is a great wrong committed to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But also part of dhulm is any wrongdoing whatsoever. Even the slightest wrongdoing is a dhulm. If someone owes you, if you owe someone one pound and you pay them 99 pence consciously, knowingly, and willfully and intentionally, you withhold one penny from them. It may be meager and trivial in our sight, but you have deprived someone willingly and knowingly of one pound. Oh, sorry, of one penny. You have violated their rights. You have deprived them of their rights. On the day of judgment, you will be questioned about that one single penny. You will be. 
And that's why in a hadith, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam says, this is the general meaning of the hadith, that whoever has a mudlamah, whoever has a right outstanding that he has failed to fulfill, then let him seek forgiveness and let him seek permissibility and let him make that wrongdoing halal for himself whilst he can, when he can, i.e. in this dunya. Before a day comes in which there shall be no friendship or trade. For on that day, Allah will exact that price. And it will be manifold. So, dhulm is any wrongdoing whatsoever, even a few pennies, even a penny. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not tolerate injustice in any way. And therefore, that's the meaning of dhulm. It doesn't just mean tyranny and oppression, it means injustice in any form. Any wrongdoing, any injustice. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says of himself, I have made dhulm injustice forbidden upon myself. Now, the meaning of something forbidden to Allah, there's no power greater than Allah, so he is not to be questioned. So what's the meaning of I have made it forbidden? Simply, Allah does not do it. Allah is not unjust in the least. And that's mentioned throughout the Qur'an. وَمَا أَنَا بِظَلَّامٍ لِلْعَبِيدٍ And I am not one to be unjust to the servants in the least. إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يَظْلِمُ مِثْقَالَ ذَرَّةٍ إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يَظْلِمُ مِثْقَالَ ذَرَّةٍ Verily, Allah is not unjust to the measure of an atom, a particle. وَمَا ظَلَمُ وَمَا ظَلَمَهُمُ اللَّهِ وَلَكِنْ أَنفُسَهُمْ يَظْلِمُونَ Allah was not unjust to them, even when he punished them. For their wrongdoings. Rather they wrong themselves. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not unjust in the least. وَمَا أَنَا بِظَلَّامٍ لِلْعَبِيدٍ وَمَا اللَّهُ يُرِيدُ ظُلْمًا لِلْعِبَادِ Allah does not seek or desire any injustice for the servants. وَمَا اللَّهُ يُرِيدُ ظُلْمًا لِلْعَالَمِينَ Allah does not desire any injustice for the worlds. Allah is not unjust in the least. There are so many verses throughout the Qur'an which speak of this. Allah is not unjust in any way. And therefore Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I have made injustice haram and forbidden upon myself. You too. And I have made it haram between you. فَلَا تَظَالَمُوا Therefore do not be unjust to one another. The universe rests on balance. The universe rests on equilibrium, on balance. If there is any disturbance or disruption to that balance, the heavens and the earth will perish. There is order in the universe. And to maintain that order, even on earth, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has sent prophets and he has revealed scriptures to ensure that the prophets and their followers and the creation as a whole uphold this balance. Wherever there is any disturbance or disruption to this balance, there is chaos, there is anarchy, there is mayhem, there is carnage, there is great suffering. And therefore Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made justice an obligation upon all of us in every single thing. Again, we restrict the meaning of justice just as we restrict the meaning of dhulm injustice. We think justice and injustice are concepts confined to the mighty and powerful, rulers, judges. 
arbitrators. But that's not true. Every one of us, the Prophet says, Every one of you is a shepherd, and each one of you will be questioned about his flock. The father of the family, the mother of the family, an employer about his employees, a ruler over his or her subjects, a teacher about his or her students, any single person that we are responsible for, we are their shepherd, and we will be questioned about our flock on the day of judgment. And injustice and injustice are not concepts restricted to the mighty and powerful. Rather, they are applicable in our everyday life. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said, Dhulm is haram upon us. And dhulm means a violation of anyone's rights. In the least, whether it's about a penny, a pound, or a pound of flesh. Dhulm is haram. And the ahadith speak of dhulm in such a way that we should regard another person's wealth, life, and property, and honor and dignity as being sacred. That's the original meaning of haram. Haram means forbidden because it's sacred. Al-Masjid al-Haram is a sacred sanctuary. And speaking of sanctity, we regard Makkah to be sacred. We regard the Kaaba to be sacred. We regard Muzdalifah and Mina and Arafat to be sacred. These are the stations of Hajj and pilgrimage. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam in his final farewell pilgrimage. One of the teachings which he left the whole world with was, O oh people, know that your lives and your wealth are sacred just as the sanctity of this month, of this day, and of this place. So just as you regard Mecca, Mina, Muzdalifa, and Arafat to be sacred, you should regard each other's property to be sacred, each other's blood to be sacred. And in fact, in a very beautiful hadith related by Abdullah ibn Umar radiyallahu anhuma, and recorded by ibn Majah in his sunan, Abdullah ibn Umar radiyallahu anhuma says, I saw the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam performing tawaf around the Kaaba. And he said, Ma atyabaki wa atyaba rihaki ma a'zamaki wa ma a'zama hurmataki ma atyabaki wa atyaba rihaki ma a'zamaki wa a'zama hurmataki waladhi nafsu muhammadin biyadih لَحُرْمَةُ الْمُؤْمِنِ أَعْظَمُ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ حُرْمَةً مِنْكَ مَالِهِ وَدَمِهِ وَأَنَّذُنَّ بِهِ إِلَّا خَيْرًا Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Abdullah ibn Umar radiyallahu anhu relates that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was performing tawaf around the Kaaba. And addressing the Kaaba, he said, O Kaaba, how sweet are you and how sweet is your fragrance. How great are you And how great is your sanctity by that Allah in whose hands rests the soul of Muhammad. The sanctity of a believer is of even a greater sanctity by Allah than you, O Gaba. The sanctity of his wealth, the sanctity of his blood, and 
that we do not think of him anything but good. That means there are three things which are sacred of a Muslim. Is mentioned in this hadith. His wealth, his blood, and his honor and dignity. And this is mentioned even further in a hadith related by my Muslim, rahmatullahi alayhi in his sahih, part of a longer hadith from Abu Hurairah radiyallahu an, in which the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, بِحَسْبِ مْرِئٍ مِّنَ الشَّرِّ أَنْ يَحْقِرَ أَخَاهُ الْمُسْلِمِ it is sufficient for a person to be evil that he holds his fellow Muslim in contempt. Then he says, كُلُّ الْمُسْلِمِ عَلَى الْمُسْلِمِ حَرَامٌ دَمُهُ وَمَالُهُ وَعِرْضُهُ Every Muslim, his wealth, his blood, and his dignity are sacred and haram upon another Muslim. So, this is where dhulm comes in. Dhulm isn't just about tyranny and oppression. Justice is even about what we think of another person. We may not deprive them of their wealth. We may not, dep- we may not harm them and hurt them physically. But if we do not think justly of them, even in our own hearts and minds, we have committed a wrong and an injustice towards them. As the Prophet said, a sanctity even greater than the sanctity of the Kaaba is that we do not think of another Muslim except good. And his blood, his wealth, and his dignity are all haram and sacred. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I have made injustice haram upon myself, I've made it haram upon you. Do not be unjust. We cannot be unjust even to our enemies. Allah's religion is balanced. The Qur'an establishes justice. The Prophet ﷺ came to establish justice. In the Qur'an, there are many verses which speak of justice. Just one verse. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمُنُوا كُونُوا قَوَّامِينَ لِلَّهِ شُهَدَاءَ بِالْقِسْتِ وَلَا يَجْرِمَنَّكُمْ شَنَآنُ قَوْمٍ عَلَىٰ أَلَّا تَعْدِلُوا اِعْدِلُوا هُوَ أَقْرَبُ لِلتَّقْوَىٰ وَاتَّقُوا اللَّهِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ خَبِيرٌ بِمَا تَعْمَلُونَ Allah says, O believers, be upright for the sake of Allah. Upholders and witnesses, upholders of justice, witnesses for the sake of Allah. And do not let your enmity or a dislike of a people incite you to being unjust. Be just. That is closer to God consciousness. And fear Allah. Verily Allah is well aware of what you are doing. In fact, in Surah Al-Ma'idah, Allah, this is a verse of Surah Al-Ma'idah, another verse of Surah Al-Ma'idah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala warns the companions, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا لَا تُحِلُّوا شَعَائِرَ اللَّهُ وَلَا الشَّهْرَ الْحَرَامِ وَلَا الْهَدْيَ وَلَا الْقَلَائِدِ وَلَا آمِينَ الْبَيْتَ الْحَرَامِ and then the verse continues. The verse speaks of the believers considering sacred the house of Allah, the symbols of Allah's religion, the sacred month, and other things associated with their pilgrimage. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala later on says, and do not let your dislike of a people 
because they have prevented you from al-masjid al-haram incite you to committing transgression now what's the background to this verse simply in the 6th year of hijrah the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam intended to go for umrah from medina this was his first visit to makkah or even in the direction of makkah and its vicinity after he had left 6 years earlier he went peacefully only with the intention of pilgrimage the lesser pilgrimage umrah with approximately 1400 companions they were prevented from entering mecca they sought permission but the quraish refused permission the muslims were incensed because this was unprecedented part of the arab custom was that they regarded al masjid al haram to be sacred they regarded the months of pilgrimage to be sacred and that sanctity meant that they would put aside their feuds and their battles so even though they were in a state of war with another tribe if that tribe visited mecca and its vicinity there would be a hands off policy there was protocol there was a recognition of the sanctity of the sacred months and the sanctity of al masjid al haram in mecca and its vicinity so it was unprecedented for the first time the arabs specifically for rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam they barred him from entering the city and there was great huha the sahaba radiyallahu anhum were besides themselves with anger they were incensed and what had happened is that while they were still camped at hudaybiyah angry incensed in a retaliatory mood other pagan tribes and pilgrims were making their way to mecca at the same time clad in their ihram so some of the muslims momentarily in their anger and desire for retaliation thought that why is it that we with the messenger of allah are being prevented from al masjid al haram and yet pagans from other parts of arabia are given free access to mecca whilst the prophet of allah is barred from the city we should prevent them and we should attack them we should prevent the others from reaching makkah as well allah actually revealed this verse warning them that oh companions oh followers oh believers do not let the fact that the quraish prevented you from al masjid al haram incite you to committing injustice and transgressing against anyone else rather consider their sacred state their animals sacrificial animals their garlands and their pilgrimage to the to mecca to be sacred in its own right do not transgress even against your enemies that's the concept of justice so there's a great obligation on us to establish justice in our everyday life and there's a very beautiful hadith about again related by Imam Bukhari and Imam Muslim rahmatullahi ima Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says Abdullah ibn Umar radiyallahu anhuma relates this hadith Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says al muslim akhu al muslim la yadhlimuhu wa la yuslimuhu wa man kana fi hajati akhihi kana Allah fi hajatihi wa man farraja an muslimin qurbatan min qurbah wa man farraja an muslimin qurbah farraja Allah anhu qurbatan min qurbati yawm al qiyamah ومن ستر مسلما ستره الله يوم القيامه رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم says whoever 
a Muslim is the brother of a Muslim. He is not unjust to him. لا يظلمه. He is not unjust to him. ولا يسلمه. Nor does he surrender him. Nor does he hand him over. What does that mean? The meaning of surrender and handing over. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam says, the believer is the brother of the believer. It's not sufficient that he doesn't oppress him himself. It's not sufficient that he does not commit injustice to him. Part of his duty towards his brother is also that he protects him and saves him from injustice. And that he does not abandon him. The meaning of wala yuslimu, hand him over or surrender him, that he doesn't abandon him. Rather, he wards off evil from him. He protects him from injustice. And therefore, we shouldn't have the approach that as long as I'm not doing anything wrong, I'll keep myself to myself. The Prophet ﷺ says, a Muslim is the brother of a Muslim. He doesn't, he is not unjust to him, nor does he abandon him. Then the Prophet ﷺ says, and whoever is preoccupied in fulfilling a need of his brother, Allah remains preoccupied in fulfilling his need. And whoever relieves a Muslim of a single suffering, Allah will relieve him of sufferings on the day of judgment. And whoever conceals the fault of a Muslim, Allah will conceal his fault on the day of judgment. And the hadith speaks about this as well. About our dependence on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to conceal our faults. We, we can't live alone. We have a duty towards each other. We have a duty to support each other. Not to abandon one another. To be there for one another. To help and aid and assist one another. Not to be selfish, but to be more selfless. And to be more concerned, to have sympathy and compassion for others. We expect all of this for ourselves, yet we are not willing to give any of it to others. And there's a very beautiful hadith later by Abu Dawood in his Sunan, in which, I'll just give the gist, the Prophet ﷺ says, there is no servant who abandons his brother when his brother is most in need of him, except that Allah will abandon him when he is most in need of Allah. That's part of the hadith. It's, the, the word's quite longer, that there is no place in which the, sanct- the dignity of a Muslim is being violated and his honor is being robbed of him and someone else doesn't assist him except that Allah will abandon him when he is most in need of Allah's assistance. So the Prophet said, a believer is the brother of a believer. He does not oppress him, he is not unjust to him, but he does not even abandon him or surrender him in any way. And if we are guilty of dhulm, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam says, again related by Abdullah ibn Umar radiyallahu anhuma, Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, inna dhulm dhulmatun yawman qiyamah, injustice will be darknesses on the day of resurrection. There's a lot to be said about this, but those who are just in every way, even in their thoughts, what's their reward? Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam relates, says in a hadith related by Abdullah ibn Amr, Recorded by my Muslim in his Sahih, Prophet says, Those who are just, they will be on pulpits of nur and light on the day of resurrection, 
by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. To the right of Allah the compassionate. And both his hands are right. Those who are just in their judgment and in their families and in their responsibilities. We are all responsible in some way. To be just means to be rewarded by being placed on a pulpit of light on the day of judgment. By Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the Prophet wasallam says in this hadith related by Allah himself. That, oh my servants, I have made dhulm haram upon myself and I have made injustice haram upon you. Therefore, do not be unjust to one another. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ya ibadi, kullukum dhalun illa man hadaytuhu fastahduni ahdikum. Oh my servants, every one of you is misguided. Except one whom I guide. Therefore, seek guidance of me and I shall guide you. And I'll end with this as we are approaching the end of our time. Indeed, every one of us is in need of Allah's guidance. We are only guided by Allah. And Allah guides whom he wills. Even faith and guidance are mysterious miracles in themselves. There are those who believe, and it's surprising how they believe. And there are those who are expected to believe, and yet they do not believe at all. There were those who met, sat with, conversed with the Prophet ﷺ. And even though they weren't his enemies, and they didn't harm him or persecute him in any way, or even oppose him, they refuse to believe in him. And there are those who never saw the Prophet ﷺ, and yet they believed. Heraclius, the Roman emperor, and inshallah on Friday the 13th, supposedly ominous state, but not really, we don't believe so. Um, on Friday the 13th, inshallah, I'll begin the commentary of the hadith of Heraclius. And in there, Heraclius was convert. He was a Byzantine Roman emperor. He was conversing with Abu Sufyan. Heraclius was actually a scholar of the Christian scriptures. He was convinced that the Prophet ﷺ was a true messenger, and he says, "If only I knew that I could safely reach the Pro- Muhammad ibn Abdullah, I would travel to him." I will undergo a great struggle to meet him. He was willing to wash the feet of the Prophet However, the glitter of power and the seduction of worldly goods overwhelmed him. And despite being intellectually convinced of the Prophet of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. He even summoned his courtiers and his great ones in, in, in the hall. And he spoke to them. And he tried to convince them to believe in Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. When they refused, he suddenly turned the tables and he said, I was only testing you. 
Otherwise, if they had agreed, he would have embraced Islam. But <clears throat> he didn't. So there are those who are convinced of the truthfulness of Islam. And yet they refuse to embrace. One would expect them to embrace. One would expect them to believe. One would expect them to have guidance. There are others of whom one would not imagine that they would have faith. And yet they are firm in their faith. Faith is a mystery in itself. It really is. We cannot understand it. Allah says in the Quran, addressing the Messenger وسلم, Verily, you cannot guide whom you wish, rather, Allah guides whom He wishes. And <clears throat> we are taught in the Quran that on the day of reckoning, in the hereafter, even the believers will say, Alhamdulillah, all praise be to that Allah who guided us to this. And we were, we were not ones to find guidance had it not been for the fact that Allah guided us. It's true. In Surah Al-Hujarat, it's mentioned that a group of Bedouin came to the Prophet ﷺ and they said to him that we are believers and we are Muslims. And they spoke of themselves in such a way as though they were doing the Messenger وسلم, a favor by believing. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says of them in the Quran, They boast of their favor to you, that they have become Muslim. Say to them, do not boast of the favor of your Islam to me. Rather, Allah boasts of his favor to you that he guided you to faith. So, <coughs> faith is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It really is. Deep down, every one of us has the capacity, the potential, the capability. And in fact, the latent belief to believe in Allah. For Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَإِذْ أَخْذَ رَبُّكَ مِن بَنِي آدَمَ مِن ظُهُورِهِمْ ذُرِّيَّتَهُمْ وَأَشْهَدَهُمْ عَلَىٰ أَنفُسِهِمْ أَلَسْتُ بِرَبِّكُمْ قَالُوا بَلَىٰ شَهِدْنَا And remember when your Lord extracted from the backs of the children of Adam their progeny. And Allah said to all of them, He made them a witness over themselves. And He said to them, أَلَسْتُ بِرَبِّكُمْ Am I not your Lord? And they all replied, of course, shahidna, we testify. There is that inner conscience, that inner voice, that conscience in every one of us. That recognition of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That realization of faith in Allah. And it's that spark which is ignited when a person believes. But it's there, there is that latent belief. It just needs to be revived. And that's why the Prophet ﷺ says in a hadith, Every child is born on nature. The meaning of this hadith isn't that every child is, everyone's born a Muslim, per se. Or everyone is on Islam. What it means is, <clears throat> the fitrah, the pure nature of every human being, if it's unpolluted, uncontaminated, unaffected, unclouded, that 
pure nature of a human being will recognize Allah and be inclined to faith. And the moment it sees Islam, the moment it receives Islam, the moment it receives the words of Allah and his messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that nature will accept and embrace the words of Allah and those of his messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. However, when it's clouded, contaminated, when it's polluted, when he has layers upon layers over it, then these are barriers. But there is that inner voice, there is that conscience, there is that deep recognition of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's there in every one of us. But ultimately, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decides who believes, who doesn't believe. Now this may seem as a great contradiction between free will and the belief of Allah. And belief in free will and belief in the guidance of Allah. The truth is, our minds are feeble and incapable of understanding these realities. They really are. Great theologians, both Muslim and non-Muslim, even Christian theologians, have grappled with this problem over the centuries. And the greatest of minds in all religions, that in, in all Abrahamic religions, and in all religions who believe in one Allah, ultimately, they have always struggled with this apparent contradiction of free will and predestination, determinism, fate on the part of Allah. And even the greatest of Christian theologians have said, ultimately, we have to live with this contradiction because we are incapable of understanding it. And we really are. There's no surprise about that. We shut our eyes, and even though we have all our other senses, we're blind to so many things. We make basic, fatal mistakes. We who are so feeble that we are disabled in many ways. Our minds are disabled in many ways. They say a human's brain is fully formed even before birth. But it's still not fully... So before a child leaves the womb of its mother... it already has its 100 billion neurons of the brain. Fully built. The brain is complete. Physically. Even in the womb. But, at the same time, the brain is not fully developed until 20 years of age. It doesn't grow any more cells. The 100 billion cells are formed in the womb. So what's the meaning of it's still not fully developed till the age of 20. The connections, the synapses, these things aren't fully developed. The ideas aren't fully developed. In fact, understanding is not fully developed. So when adults say of children that they just don't understand, forget three or four-year-olds, even an 18-year-old, as a teenager, does not understand what the parents are saying, what the elders are saying, scientists say, neurologists say, don't blame them. The fact is, scientifically, it's a practical impossibility for them to understand. Because they're still not fully developed. Their minds are not fully developed. So if a human being's mind is not fully developed till the age of 20, and they are unable to fathom or truly comprehend what their own dad or mum is saying, how can we pretend or arrogate to ourselves the claim that we can understand Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? How can we?
We can't, we, can't, we can't see what's behind us. We can't remember what we had for breakfast. And we wish to... Speaking of memories, Saeed, uh, the, the, the Imam I mentioned, who was equivalent to Imam Malik in Damascus, Saeed ibn Abdul Aziz, he's a great scholar. He says, in my entire life, I have never written a single hadith. He's a great scholar. He says, in my entire life, I've never written a single hadith. Why? He memorized every single hadith and he related every hadith from memory. He never wrote. Never wrote a single word of hadith. We are feeble even in comparison to the scholars of the past. So these are great realities and truths which we can't really understand. Ultimately, we have to accept both. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has told us, you have a choice, you have freedom. Even scientists say, theoretical physicists say, that some, even those who don't believe in God, they say that what you will have for, if anyone was to survive, but what someone will have to eat thousands of years from now is already predetermined. But they say that not from a faith perspective. They say that speaking of physics and the laws and the constants of this universe. So believing in the laws and the constants of this universe and believing in the theoretical physics of the universe, they actually accept predeterminism. That everything that's supposed to happen is already decreed. It will happen. And there's nothing or, that anybody can do to change it. When it comes to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Remember, there is no concept of past, present, or future in relation to Allah. Because these are all constants of time. And time is a creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Time is a feature of this universe. And Allah is the Lord of the worlds. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. All praise be to Allah, the Lord of the worlds. It's not just one universe. Allah knows best how many. So if time is just a special feature of this universe, there's no guarantee that other universes have a concept of time. All this discussion of time in relation to Allah is merely an approximation to help us understand. Otherwise, time, past, present, and future are all the same for Allah, for it's his creation. So how can we understand it? This is why Qadr, fate, predestination, determinism. These are subjects that we just cannot understand, but they are true as Allah has described them. So on the one hand, we are free. We have freedom of choice. We have free will. But at the same time, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, You cannot guide whom you will. Allah guides whom he wills. And verse after verse of the Qur'an speaks of that reality. We should constantly pray to Allah for guidance. If someone is a Muslim, does that mean that they don't continue to pray for guidance? No. Guidance is of great degrees. And every day, in every rak'ah, we pray, اِهْدِنَ الصِّرَاطِ الْمُسْتَقِيمِ Guide us to the straight path. We are forever looking for guidance. And guidance leads to guidance. Guidance provides momentum for further guidance. Allah says, Those who have found guidance, Allah increases them in guidance and gives them their taqwa. And 
in Surah Al-Kahf, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks of those young men, إِنَّهُمْ فِتْتَةٌ آمَنُوا بِرَبِّهِمْ فَزِدْنَاهُمْ هُدَى That they were a group of young men who believed in their Lord, so we increased them in their belief. And in their guidance. Guidance leads to guidance. We should forever pray to Allah for further guidance. The more a person is guided, the more truths of the Quran and of the Hadith and of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are revealed to them. And I end with one thing. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam used to constantly pray for guidance himself, despite being the messenger of Allah. And Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal and Imam Tirmidhi and others all relate from the mother of the believers, Umm Salamah radiyallahu anha, that she says, the most constant dua of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the most excessive dua was, Ya muqallib al-qulub, thabbit qalbi ala deenik. A one who is a flipper of the hearts, keep my heart steadfast upon your religion. So she says, he would excessively make this dua. And in fact, Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal relates the same hadith from Umm Mu'minin Aisha radiyallahu anha. So we know this from a number of companions. Anas ibn Malik radiyallahu anha, Umm Salama radiyallahu anha, Aisha radiyallahu anha, radiyallahu, Umm Salama radiyallahu anha, Aisha radiyallahu anha. They all say that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam's excessive dua was, in fact, in one narration, Umm Salama radiyallahu anha was asked by someone, what was the most constant dua of Rasulullah? What was his most favorite dua, what was his most excessive dua? And she said, Ya muqallib al-qulub, thabbit qalbi ala deenik. She then says that I asked the messenger, O Prophet of Allah, I see that you excessively recite this dua. Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, Indeed, the, the hearts of mankind are in between the fingers, two fingers of the fingers of Rahman ta'ala. He flips them as he wishes. So he being the messenger of Allah would pray for steadfastness. And Anas bin Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal relates that Anas bin Malik radiyallahu anhu says that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam would excessively pray that Ya muqallib al-qulub thabbit qalbi ala deenik O flipper of the hearts, keep my heart steadfast upon your religion. So we said to him, O Messenger of Allah, we have believed in you and we have accompanied you do you still fear for us? I.e. in terms of guidance, that we will lose guidance. And these are the companions. Prophet ﷺ said, Indeed, for the hearts of mankind are between the fingers of Rahman Ta'ala. He flips them as he wishes. So, and not just in the hadith, but in the holy Qur'an. رَبَّنَا لَا تُزِرْ قُلُوبَنَا بَعْدَ إِذْ هَدَيْتَنَا وَهَبْ لَنَا مِنْ لَدُنْكَ رَحْمَةً إِنَّكَ أَنْتَ الْوَهَّابِ O our Lord, لَا تُزِرْ قُلُوبَنَا Do not sway our hearts. Do not let our hearts go astray. After you have given us guidance. And grant us forgiveness from yourself. Verily, you are the great giver. So ultimately, guidance is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And only, and as Allah says in the verse of the Quran, وَلَوْ شَاءَ رَبُّكَ لَآمَنَ مَنْ فِي الْأَرْضِ كُلُّهُمْ جَمِيعًا أَفَأَنْتَ تُكْرِهُ النَّاسَ حَتَّى يَكُونُوا مُؤْمِنِينَ He was consoling the Prophet wasallam that if your Lord wish, all who are upon the earth, all of them would believe. What? Will you compel people? 
until they become mu'mineen, until they become believers. Even the Prophet ﷺ could not compel anyone to believe. Guidance only comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Not just the initial guidance of Islam, but the continuous guidance of goodness, of good deeds, of faith, of steadfastness upon faith, of piety, of righteousness. All of this comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When a person is humble, Allah will open up their mind and heart. When a person is arrogant, Allah will block his mind and heart. Allah actually says in the Quran, سَأَصْرِفُ عَنْ آيَاتِيَ الَّذِينِ يَتَكَبَّرُونَ فِي الْأَرْضِ بِغَيْرِ الْحَقِّ I will turn away from my signs those who are arrogant upon the earth without rights. So much so that Allah says, وَإِنْ يَرَوْ كُلَّ آيَةٍ لَا يُؤْمِنُوا بِهَا وَإِنْ يَرَوْ سَبِيلَ الرُّشْدِ لَا يَتَّخِذُوهُ سَبِيلًا وَإِنْ يَرَوْ سَبِيلَ الْغَيِّ يَتَّخِذُوهُ سَبِيلًا Even if they see every sign, they will not believe. In fact, the verse continues, if they see the path of righteousness, they will not take it as a path. But if they see the path of waywardness and deviation, they will adopt that as a path. So when a person is arrogant, they see falsehood in truth and truth in falsehood. And they are unable to recognize the signs of Allah. So when one humbles oneself, not just physically, but even mentally and in heart, and they open up their mind and heart for the reality of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah will fill their hearts and their minds with belief, with guidance. It's said that, uh, silly, well, it's not a silly story, but a Chinese philosopher, Chinese have this ritual of tea. They drink many different kinds of teas in one session. So a Chinese philosopher was teaching a student. And Eastern philosophy is a rage these days. So as he was teaching, the student kept on interjecting, kept on interrupting so the, with questions and statements and interjections. The Chinese philosopher said, enough, let's have some tea. Philosopher poured a cup of tea till the brim. Then, without emptying it, he took another pot and poured the second type of tea. The student said, Master, enough, enough, I've understood. What did he understand? We still haven't understood. (laughs) What did he understand? You cannot pour the second tea from the second pot without emptying the cup first. Which means that if that student wishes to gain the knowledge and the wisdom of his sage and master, he must empty his heart and mind. If it's already filled with prejudgments and clouded with preconceptions, then how will his heart and mind be penetrated? Now, this doesn't mean that we empty ourselves totally, but, of course, but what it does mean is that we have to humble ourselves. If someone humbles themselves, Allah will guide them. Someone is arrogant, not just physically, but mentally. If someone is arrogant, as Allah says in that verse of the Quran, Allah will turn the signs from them. In fact, so much so that they won't even recognize the signs when they see them. They will see falsehood in truth and truth in falsehood. And they will consciously adopt the path of waywardness and they will consciously shun the path of righteousness. That's a result of arrogance. So once we humble ourselves, we choose to be the ibad of Allah 
Allah will guide us. Look how the Prophet ﷺ was constantly praying. I end with this, with just those two sentences. O oh, my servants, I have made injustice forbidden upon myself, and I have made it forbidden amongst you. Therefore, do not be unjust to one another, O oh, my servants. Every one of you is misguided, except one whom I guide. Therefore, seek my guidance, and I shall guide you. We'll continue with the rest of the hadith next week, inshallah, when I will conclude. Wasallallahu wa sallam ala abdihi wa rasulih nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik nashadu wa la ilaha illa ant. Nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk.